and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. In today's podcast, we're talking to Olivia Sidrich, the author of the quite brilliant Sympathy. We're talking how to develop true-to-life characters, the perils and perks of the internet and social media. And as ever, Olivia gives us her tips for aspiring writers like you. Hello, everybody. Um, we are here with Olivia Sudjic today. Um, I think I pronounced that pretty well. Very well. Um, she is the author of Sympathy, which came out in May of this year, and it's really, really good. <laughs> Amy is. You're like two. You're like pretty much two thirds through it. Two thirds through it and completely enthralled. Like I probably won't be able to concentrate during this podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll be like, tell me what happened. <laughs> no, I'm, Don't I'm, tell. I'll us try what really hard. To not give spoilers. Well, our readers are like, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's excellent. Thank you. So, Olivia, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into writing? Sure. Okay. So I'm London-based and I have just, I guess, started calling myself. A writer, actually prompted by having to do a visa form recently. I had a kind of existential crisis. I was like, Am I a what am I? And then I was like, And of all the options in the list, I was like, I finally identify as a writer. Before that, I was doing um, a little mix of everything, but never really finding my niche. So I graduated having done English Lit, and that was sort of, I guess, for most people, that's an obvious jump to being a writer, but in lots of ways, I sort of felt like I'd reached my fiction saturation point and then I kind of went for about three or four years doing lots of different jobs and then I came back to it well not back to it I I think the last time I properly wrote creatively was at school and then you know how you could sort of get distracted by needing to make money (laughs) and then it got to the point where I was like okay if I don't do this now aged 25 then I'm going to be waiting till I'm like 55 so I was like this is I kind of basically made lots of speeches to my parents about letting letting me take this is almost as like a gap year which I hadn't had before um so I had no real (laughs) experience I guess I hadn't done a creative writing course I hadn't been involved in any kind of ongoing creative writing I wasn't one of those people who's just like I know what my destiny is I just basically felt like I definitely don't know what my destiny is so I'm just gonna try this um so yeah I I kind of in about 2014 I quit my then job took a six month sabbatical and then obviously what happens when you take six months off to write is you don't write at all Um, and I'm just the kind of person who needs the pressure of deadlines and that kind of thing so right at the end of the six months I decided that I had to cut away my plan b so I called up my very understanding very generous boss and I was like thank you for the six months I'm actually not coming back but I also haven't written the book (laughs) Um, and then I guess you know what what is sort of I guess annoying for a reader to hear who's sort of like struggling with this process is I had a big stroke of luck um, in that I met my the woman who had become my agent um, at a kind of a, a, a sort of party or event and I didn't realise that she was an agent so I just sort of blabbed because I'd got to that point where I had to announce that I was writing a book in order to like give myself the pressure to do it yeah, I was absolutely. like go big and then literally go home and write it <laughs> um, and she was sort of sort of I guess overhearing some of the kind of bits of the story that I was describing and so she got in touch afterwards and said would you like to send me 
what you've got. And I was like, aha, what I've got, which is nothing, (laughs) which was then obviously the kind of like fire under my ass that I needed to actually write her the first three chapters. And then when I wrote the first three chapters, I sent it to her and she was like, right, the Frankfurt Book Fair is in like six, seven months. Do you think you can finish the whole book? So I did the first three chapters in, the, in three months and then the rest of the book after that. But it was like, I guess, sort of almost a Dickensian process of writing it in serial for her, which is all the best things I imagine from a creative writing course without having to spend the money in the sense that she was my reader. She gave me deadlines. She was a reason to write and like a reader to focus on. Um, now almost I wish that I had done if I could have afforded it a creative writing course because you get a nice group and, and I'm not as used to some people as doing readings and that kind of stuff I think I'd be more used to it if I'd had that experience but in the end it worked out so yeah and how yeah I mean I think it's one of those things where I the bit that I was you know in terms of getting into it I really never thought about being published which I imagine that you think about a bit more if you're in a kind of group where they're promising you meetings with agents and meetings with publishers and reading events and in that way it was really nice because I could just exclusively focus on writing without worrying about it getting sold but it does mean that when you finally come out of your little cocoon in hibernation you're like oh my god people are going to read it people are going to look at and me and I won't be able to stand next to them and be like no 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 I didn't mean that <laughs> like, it's this very weird like total inversion of your experience for the last year to suddenly have it out in the world when you've just been on your own for all of it mm-hmm. so it's quite I was quite rabbit in the headlights at first getting into my stride now Amazing. Good to know. That's good to know. Um, So it's obviously came out in May and it's been getting rave reviews. Like I said earlier, I'm two thirds in and absolutely loving it. Um, I have to agree that it's with the reviews that say it's completely compelling, funny and pretty just sort of disturbing in parts. Right. Um, So for those people who haven't picked up the book yet, which Uh they should absolutely do, um, please can you say a little about what it's about and why they should read it? So I think the... I literally only got to the point of being able to describe it about a week ago, which is would have been handy if I got there before the blurb was written. Um, it's, I guess it's sort of, it's got thriller-ish elements to it, but in a way, describing it as a thriller kind of, I think, limits the way that the story actually works, which is that you're, it's a character-driven book where you're in someone's head for the whole time, never really sure if you can trust her version of events, but the, the main character, Alice, goes to New York to try and sort of work out her very murky, very hazy backstory. She's been adopted and displaced and moved around the globe and sort of shunted around between families for a while. And she goes back to New York because that's where she was adopted, but with very vague plans. And then instead of working out, or working on herself or like, you know, discovering her life purpose, she ends up meeting, or initially not meeting, but finding on Instagram this kind of Instagram famous writer who she becomes sort of obsessed with from afar which I think anyone has you know who's ever had a girl crush will understand and then I guess she starts through various sort of part of them part of the reason is her own fault other things are much more to do with her background but she starts to lose her grip on reality and starts to blur the line between her life and this woman's life and she begins sort of stalking her first via the internet and then she kind of inserts herself in a very real sense into this woman's life and so over the course of the novel she kind of gradually detaches from what I might add you know inverted commas around this but digital and then real life sort of merge I mean 
I think you're, if you haven't reached the end yet, <laughs> that maybe sounds like an unfair portrayal, but she does start to lose her grip towards okay. the end. Great, how exciting. <laughs> I'm going to go home and read the rest of it immediately. And then I'm going to start it as soon as you're done. Um, we talked to a lot of writers and we always ask about where their ideas came from. We kind of have a 50-50 split of some are like, it's from my experience, and others are like, it just came to me in a dream. One, like, where do you sit on that spectrum? How did the idea come Not to in you? a dream. Um, <laughs> although, in a way, I wrote it in a dream. Like, it's, it was easier to, like, write a kind of manic scene out of a kind of fever dream experience. But it started off actually not as an idea for a novel necessarily, potentially more like an academic, master's-type research idea, in that I was sitting at my desk sort of spinning my wheels a bit and and I got interested in this 17th century sort of pseudo medicine slash technology called sympathy powder which they obviously like like leeches etc was not I mean it didn't work but they believed that it could connect people and things across time and space and I got very interested in this idea and then I thought hey I'll write a historical novel and there'll be the sympathy powder that connects all these sort of families and generations and then I was like oh David Mitchell already wrote that (laughs) Um, and then I guess David Mitchell (laughs) exactly so I think when I you know earlier I said that in my sabbatical I wasn't getting anything done and I think it's because I had this false idea that to be taken seriously especially as a female first time writer you have to like make it historical and there has to be like generations and not that there's anything wrong with that type of book but I think I was so wary of of allowing any personal experience or the present day into it because then I wouldn't be able to feel invisible in the story that I was just like spraying the sort of third person and historical settings all over it and then it wasn't until I realized that actually that sympathy powder could be updated to modern technology and actually it was okay to have a first-person narrator because that would suit the story way more in terms of being stuck in someone's head and not being, you know, that's the word sympathy. Part of the reason it's called that is because you're just so unable to experience other lives and that's what the novel sort of does as a form. It's potentially what social media and Instagram does. But it was only when I got rid of that fear and was like, the story is not happening unless I allow myself into it somewhere, which is to base it obviously in the extreme present And also I felt like I actually took inspiration in the end from the internet. So originally the internet was like my public enemy number one to writing. Like it's distracting, you know, it it kills off plots in most books, which is why a lot of people are afraid to touch modern stories in a most complete sense because you'd actually have characters who spent the majority of the time silent, looking down. Um, And I just thought, well, if it's my enemy, actually I should keep my enemies very close. And I then ended up sort of turning all the things that I found frustrating about trying to write in the age of the internet almost into the into the part of the subject matter. So there was this sort of twin inspiration. One was this sort of historical thing, but then I gave it this sort of radical makeover and turned it into the present day. So Sympathy Powder became the internet. It's cool. so, I, I really want to read more about Sympathy Powder now. Like I'm super I discovered it from this um, really great uh, professor at my university who was really interested in kind of the 17th century and and she had like pet ferrets and she was I, you know you just store it in like a back pocket of your mind and you're like someday this will be useful this is going to be I mean that's the useful sympathy yeah. all of it <laughs> there's been no ferrets yet in your book yeah. no ferrets yeah. yeah that's that's a twist oh no I gave it away um, um, so 
the, the cast of characters that you've created are obviously incredible. Like, you know, obviously it's through her eyes, but you can sort of see their flaws and you find them irritating, like Dwight is. Mm, he is very but irritating. He's so irritating, <laughs> but also hilarious. Like, he, yeah. some of the things he says crack me up. And another thing that I love is... Um, the tiny little details that you put in that are the things that Alice notices about these people, like just it's 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 such a good inner thought monologue. It's it's, it's incredible. Um, but so how do you go about developing these characters, and um, specifically how did you find the voice of Alice? So, I mean, the, there are there are sort of lots of answers to this. So I guess one was that. I read this essay by Zadie Smith, or actually she gave it as a speech, but it's it's online, you can find it. I think if you search that crafty feeling, Zadie Smith, you find it. And it's actually my kind of almost like backbone when I'm writing. I revert to it to be like, what stage am I at? What does she say? And she talks about when you're trying to develop characters, how at the beginning it seems so absurd to be trying to create real people out of like commas and you know the alphabet and so especially in a word document as well I don't write on paper so it just feels like so you know insane so in some ways the thing I was saying about trying to insert yourself somehow into the story or setting it in the present or finding you know locations that are real to you as opposed to imagined or far away um I found it much easier to imagine real people or to imagine that these characters were real people if I set them in very real events. So in the story, there's lots of news events from 2014 that people will recognise that they can map these characters against. So, for example, the missing Malaysia flight and, you know, the tsunami. It feels almost... It felt to me like I tricked myself into believing in these characters by, like, giving them this very... You know, I had this crazy timeline in my room that looked a bit like a crime scene at that point where I was like these people are real because this this is real and then I lent again as Zadie says that lots of first time writers do on another story so the Alice through the looking glass story um, became almost this like thing to lean on like a scaffolding where if I was feeling like this is meaningless why am I doing this I was like because it's a modern take on this existing <laughs> story which you know it's it's not like a modern retelling of that story at all but it just helped me feel like I was in conversation with other books in other times it makes you feel like you're part of this thing that's bigger than just you which helps when you're like no one's ever going to read this I'm not even going to end up reading this yeah. um, and then I guess in terms of the actual characters you know, it's one of those things where you're obviously very wary of anecdotes from real life, your friends, you know, being thrown under the bus and ending up in, in it. So in a way, it was more like I would just sit covertly in coffee shops and, like, over here, just sort of do that kind of annoying flanner thing, which was going to make everyone in coffee shops really paranoid. <laughs> um, please don't look up my face. <laughs> um, I, I just sort of felt like, Every, that's why I preferred, at least initially, writing in public spaces rather than on my own. Because when you're just lacking that, if you're worried that your characters are going to sort of descend into caricature and you're sitting watching a woman and how she moves and the kind of intonation, all that kind of stuff, hearing real conversations going on, it just puts you into that frame of mind. Whereas having not done, you know, many, I don't know, creative writing exercises, which I'm sure would help with that, but just sitting on your own, you're like, 
how would a person speak? And then it becomes like the way that you spoke when you invented, you know, conversations with your dolls and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So you're just being in real life was very helpful. The only character who's actually based on a real individual and still, you know, very blurred with other things is the grandmother who Alice initially goes to stay with in New York or to sort of rediscover her um, origins because I felt, like I said, it, it seems absurd to be making up, you know, Joe and Jane and these imaginary things. So it was like a way in. But then once I was in there, having one real person almost helped with all the others because I was like, well, that's a real person, so they must be talking to a real person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, your book is it's co- it covers technology. That's obviously quite a major theme, and you've used terms like digital nomad and digital immigrant to describe uh, with irony. Yeah, <laughs> tarts and tongue in cheek um, <laughs> descriptions um, to to describe people who've kind of had technology thrust upon them. Mm-hmm. Where do you put yourself? Well, I something I've been sort of I've been wary of but perhaps not very successful in in giving the impression that I'm not sort of a technophobe or a kind of luddite like I wrote this because I am part of the problem or rather I don't see technology as being inherently bad um I am fully you know on board with the kind of original Tim Berners-Lee vision of the internet as being this amazing resource that opens up the world and helps individuals connect to this network that's much bigger than themselves all those utopian ideas of you know free information all that kind of stuff big big fan big thumbs up I think what I you know want wanted to sort of suggest with the book which also again like it's not a cautionary tale because it's very much an individual's experience she is already psychologically vulnerable so I'm not saying people use internet bad and you know only bad things can come of you know intimacies forged online not at all of course you can meet people and form very meaningful relationships but I do feel like we've moved way faster than the kind of human moral ethical whatever you want to call it aspect can keep up with even just understanding like the fact that I will click accept to some cookie that I'm like I have no idea what that means (laughs) but fine and that kind of growing sense of unease that growing feeling of like oh I'm being advertised you know pregnancy tests and this sofa I looked at a year ago and actually maybe more insidiously my choices every day the search results I get how is that being shaped what does this you know anonymous internet know about me so the kind of the stalking element of the story was very much actually not supposed to be just a comment on our you know how the how technology turns us all into stalkers but much more about how actually the internet follows us around predicts us, builds up this picture of us that may or may not be the case and then actually instead of opening up our world it narrows it down, the choices we make and you know it can be obviously a very superficial thing like you know brands of I don't know sofa that you get to see but actually it can also be really insidious in terms of healthcare or you know like political I mean look Mm -hmm. at filter bubbles and elections then you know the way that we get into these cycles I feel like is really dangerous and so my target for criticism or like sort of any moral tutting was not the people who use it it's the designers it's the governments and the corporations and even Tim Berners-Lee is like wow we've got quite far away from where I saw this going and now we need to find a way to gain control again of this and have real choice that was sort of more what I was looking at I remember (laughs) I remember the first time I saw a personalized advert and I was like hello and I was like 
internet yeah how are you doing this and it records every clip yep. every like like it's just all stored and you have no idea how and where it goes and and there are definitely cases i mean i don't know if i can shout out to another podcast it's very different <laughs> oh yeah yeah big fans of um, other stuff there's this <laughs> There's an American podcast, which is, you know, same family as, like, This American Life and stuff like that, um, which looks at... They did this um, series called The Privacy Paradox. And if you look that up as a podcast, they did this real in-depth examination of this trade-off between privacy and convenience. And they just really... They looked at the most extreme examples, even in the cases of, like, terrorism and crime, all those kind of things where you may not think you have anything to hide and there's nothing wrong with your personal information... But they compared, for example, let's say in Trump's America, the way that if everybody from like a protest movement is using an encrypted messaging service versus so so the one person who is secretly doing something, they look suspicious. Whereas if everyone is like just basically making informed choices, that's where I wanted that's where I wanted someone to read the book and think, oh, I do this very unconsciously. Yeah. What does it mean? Mm. Like, who knows what about me? And also, what do I know about the people that I probably shouldn't? Do you reckon that comes from being, as you call it, a digital native? So, like, someone that is just so... so would you reckon they're the just kind of people that... Native. Yeah, okay, <laughs> so I'm exactly the same age as the internet. Okay. Um, within a few months, I think. And I feel very much like perhaps my younger cousins or some of the people that I used to sort of babysit or tutor, um, just very much they can't imagine that this isn't normal that you can know everything about a person before you meet them form all your judgments based on this you know it used to be as a teenager or even like an 11 year old your bedroom was the place you expressed yourself and no one would see your photos or your band posters unless they got into that bedroom Mm -hmm. and now it's like everyone has their bedroom teenage bedroom open and I'm so lucky that I'm not as much of a digital native as them because I would have so many horrific embarrassing things (laughs) online that I couldn't take back that's what I find so scary as well is that you know maybe our parents generation were initially wary about digital because everything to them seemed so transient like it would disappear it wasn't analog it wasn't real you couldn't hold it and now what I find so scary is that anything you put online exists forever and outlives you and comes back to haunt you whether it's information or images or whatever it just oh dear I'm sounding really tinfoil hatty again no I always I get so frustrated with the things that are advertised to me like it's always like baby stuff yeah. or you know like, what have like you yeah. been I know someone <laughs> I think it's just they know my age yeah they know your age yes, and they know yeah. certain details about you yeah. and, I, and I know you know for example a friend's boyfriend who nearly broke up with her and went very weird because when she he was using her computer for some reason and it was like pampers this baby grow that you know supplements for pregnant women that and he was like oh my god she's been googling that and she was like I haven't I'm just 28 yeah I'm just being targeted whereas my boyfriend would be like why are there so many wedding dresses on here like no reason no reason at all (laughs) you're like it's the internet someone else is the the bloody internet Tim Berners-Lee um so so, sorry um Um, so obviously you've talked about your attitude towards social media but how vital a role do you think it plays as an author uh, as in as in like promoting yourself right and, and, okay. how, and, and do you feel kind of comfortable in that kind of area of using social media like how yeah huh. how so I, as I said I wrote it almost because I myself had some anxieties and I have to say that like my low-key paranoia turned into like full-blown I mean <laughs> I think that's the way with anyone when they write a book they get so involved in their story that it becomes it feels like everything's turning real around you and that's why I'm 
so glad now to have slightly put that character to bed because I was turning into Alice and like paranoia about you know my online behavior but it's very much that at the same time I don't see I see you know social media like anything else that you know the novel originally was the scary thing everyone thought was like going to ruin people's morality and lead young women astray and I sort of feel like I love parts of it I love you know the fact that there are all these like hilarious meme accounts and I love the fact that you know I didn't realize when I chose the title for my book that if you put hashtag sympathy on online you get this weird wormhole into other people's suffering oh, God, rather yeah, than course. promoting the book it's like oh god like this is really or like, <laughs> this is not yeah, like lots of weird inspirational quotes as well anyway but I do I do feel like I've got now I originally had a private Instagram account that I set up for writing the book because I didn't have it actually before I set up the book before I wrote the book I hadn't got Instagram and then I decided because it was actually in my American contract that I had to have a form of I had to have a website I had to have a form of social media and I'm sort of like Twitter allergic because I find it a bit scary I mean I look at it but I don't use it because I'm just not but I found that I would actually feel too exposed to have my my you know account that had like grandmas and birthdays and whatever as my work one so I set up a new one which is baby novelist um and that was because I used to basically have a weird low tongue and when I said babe when I said debut novelist my parents thought I was saying baby novelist for a really long time <laughs> and they were like that's a cute thing but at the same time are you sure that's what everyone calls it I was like no 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 um anyway so I have that and that's like a quite nice way to like separate out the two worlds and it's quite a nice like meta way of exploring some of the themes and I and the whole point of it being Instagram as opposed to like Twitter in the book was that it's image-based, and I was very interested in how images are open to interpretation in a big way compared to, like, a tweet and words, which are obviously, like, slightly more... Yeah, and how, kind of, like, with Mizuko, how she... Um, her, how, what she focuses on in a picture shows... will t- show who's looking at the photo, her perspective yes, on something. Yes, exactly. Which is kind of another insight, isn't it? Like, mm. showing what they notice about seemingly mundane things. Exactly. Kind of, then you'd start to notice The whole way of seeing that it suggests and the way that you again you know that everything's being filtered through all these multiple Mm -hmm. layers of looking and seeing and that was where the through the looking glass thing came as well like screens and mirrors and all that kind of stuff but I felt like I had to have some form of social media and and actually in place of a kind of network of writers it was a nice way to like not feel alone in your in your daily life Um, and I have met like some really lovely you know, aspiring writers or or just part of the kind of literary community. But it's obviously really awkward when at the end of like an event someone will come up to me and say, Hey, I follow you on Instagram, but I'm not like Alice. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I've written this book that makes it really hard for yeah. people to approach me in real life via social media. I'm like, it's fine. We're all Alice. Yeah. <laughs> well, talking of Alice, she and talking of the way that, you know, it's so easy to kind of just notice all these details and then to overthink all of you know overthink all the scenarios and just get so into it um do you think that's the trait of a writer yes (laughs) (laughs) um or at least the type of writer I am speaking obviously only from my own experience I feel like you know um or actually there's there's that really nice I think it's a T.S. Eliot quote where he says that in the mind of the writer 
you know, the smell of cooking and the writing of Spinoza and, you know, whatever it is, everything is connected in your mind when you're writing a book. And there is obviously, I think there is a trap that I maybe not fell into, but kind of put one foot into, which is when you write your first book, you don't ever think you're going to get a chance to do it again. So like every story almost goes into it. All your ideas go into that first book. And so at the time of writing it, I could see all the connections between all these ideas. But I sort of feel like perhaps if I'd had a longer time or like a sort of, you know, we wrote it in basically, we? I wrote it in six months. <laughs> I wrote it in six months, but it felt collaborative with my agent. Um but if I'd had longer, I think I would have been more confident about like extracting maybe some of, of it and like streamlining it more, making it a bit shorter. But I do feel like a part of what I was trying to suggest with the internet is that, again, that's how our brains have almost been rewired, is not to think about linear stories, not to think about, you know, characters who are almost, I guess, 19th century and very definite, stable, solid sense of self, much more you know 21st century characters are much more porous and I want to suggest that instead of a kind of individual conscience or consciousness it's much more like networked like you are almost a product way more of all the people that you encounter online or whatever it is you're just so inundated with all these other selves and I wanted to suggest that the way the internet work is it works is to make us all much more like that seeing these connections between things or not necessarily balking when something very seemingly random pops up alongside something else so I didn't I did feel at the same time like that slight first timer foible was actually kind of useful for the type of book that I wanted to write which was I guess a more internet kind of novel than a you know a more historical 19th century type of novel cool <laughs> so um, we obviously the people that we li- listen to this hopefully are kind of people please um, listen yeah, <laughs> are all aspiring writers so it's always handy to sort of understand more about your writing processes and kind of how long obviously you just said it took you six months to write um, but do you have any kind of hints or tips that you can share with our listeners well six months is I mean there was a long gestation period well g- comparative to the actual time it took to write and I guess the first thing I would say is that when you are really frustrated and perhaps you're not actually writing anything or you're doing lots of research but you know you're kind of just treading water that's composting time and is so valuable if you're not actually getting any work done it it it's when you kind of sift in your mind through all of that stuff and it really it just means that when you finally do get going you can write at a kind of crazy speed you may not be that type of writer. You may be able to write sentences every day, in which case, good for you. Why are you listening to this podcast? Or, or, or damn you. <laughs> yeah, or damn you, yeah. Um, I feel like when I finally did get going, um, it really helped to narrow down who I thought of as my reader because, you know, obviously trying to please anyone, sorry, everyone, <laughs> do you want to please someone? <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea that it could be just this, you know, the 60-year-old a uh, woman in the countryside who likes, you know, Patricia Highsmith versus, like, somebody who's really into Ben Lerner and you're like, I want to please them both. <laughs> um, I felt like I really wanted to narrow down my reader to, like, one person. Um, and that really helped because then you almost write more naturally, like like you're writing to a friend or, or just someone in mind. Um, I guess the other thing I felt when I was sort of getting going is that protecting your time is obviously so important um 
but I found anyway that if even if I had one thing to do that day that took me out of the world of the book it was as good as not having the day at all even if it was like a half an hour coffee it's like waking up from a dream and then not being able to get back into it at least at the beginning when you're kind of rolling that ball up the hill it gets to a point I'd say for me anyway in my process where I reach the kind of magical middle which isn't necessarily the actual spatial middle of the book but it, it gets to a point where you're like I actually can't hear anything anyone in the real world is even <laughs> saying. It's just all starts to kind of flow out of you. But in the first half, where it really is like every time you come back to your laptop, you have to think, right, who is everyone again? And where is everyone? And what's the vibe? All, all that kind of resituating yourself in the story every time. It's much better to have like a two week total lockdown see no one than it is to like spread it out over eight weeks and you know obviously that isn't impossible for somebody who has kids or whatever it is but like that's why partly I thought right I'm going to do this now before I have when I can be really selfish and then if you can't do that like find a way to do it like you know give your make your friends or your family like just disappear find a way to disappear (laughs) Yeah, or not, or not like home. <laughs> Favorite movie. Ever. Get left at home. Devise a series of interlocking devices to keep people from your door. Actually, it's quite like a home alone. Produce a best-selling. You're filthy the animals. Yeah. <laughs> um, just so I've just got one more question. Um, so when? Um, how are you? Fi- how are you finding it now that it's been published? Like you, you said earlier about how when, when I said to you that I'd read it, you were like, "Oh God!" Like, I, I find that- it difficult when yeah. people tell me that. Yeah, it's. Um, I try to be pleased, but often it feels more like someone saying, I'm reading your diary and how I feel about it. Or, you know, I've seen naked pictures of you and you want to be like, why? Why would you do that? Um, but it's I'm getting to the point where um, I think what's hard about being a debut, and especially if you've not written anything else, like any short stories that appear online or whatever, is that you are in a one-to-one ratio with that book. And it's very hard for people, or you imagine it's hard for people, to separate you from that book. So when people say they're reading a book, it feels very personal in a way that I'm sure if you write two books or three books, then suddenly that ratio is totally different and you are a person who writes fiction, Mm -hmm. um, not somebody who just writes this one thing, which is why, you know, with, for example, Friends and Family, I didn't let anyone read it until it was actually published. Oh, wow, no one at all? (laughs) No one. So just your agent? Just my agent and my editors. Okay. Which obviously meant that there was a big, anxious, like, kind of almost meltdown right before it came out. But it just, it felt like if I were to send them, like, a PDF of this, they would just read it like an email that I was sending them. And especially because it was I this, I that. So to save myself from that and to be more fearless, I just kept it totally close to my chest and just, just with, like, professional, you know, opinions dealt in those rather than... Obviously, not everyone has a professional opinion, but you can find a stranger who doesn't have anything to do with your life um, and send it to them. And then, hold on a second. Wait, what was the actual question? It was, um, it was just how you found the process of it yeah, going out. Yeah, so the then when it, actually, when it actually came out, I have to say, like, I know that anxiety is like the new feminism or whatever, but I was anxious. Like, not because it's tragedy. I was fully anxious. I, I spoke with my agent. I was like, I'm feeling really anxious. And I thought she was going to give me this, like, really great, you know, pep talk, which she did. But she was like, first, beta blockers. <laughs> I was like, right. You know, it, it's one of those things which when you've worked on something for a really long time and then there's this date in the diary of publication, I'm really bad at waiting for events. See it much more like 
an evolving process where every day another person reads it, even if it's the marketing team of your publishing house or whatever, not like the launch. Because yeah. if you have this one day in mind, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I really, it would just get to the point where like I was, I took a restful holiday, like my first holiday in almost two, three years that wasn't working on the book like the week before publication and I was standing on this beautiful beach and I was like I feel really bad I feel really like this beach is really big (laughs) I was like couldn't even enjoy my holiday so I was really anxious in the lead up because I'd I'd given it this like special prominence as a day and I think I should have seen it much more like this gradual you know even from the first time the cover is announced or whatever it's it's out in the world and people also take ages to read books so so even though you think that suddenly they're going to have read it like it's kind of it obviously takes a bit it's a bit of time and then suddenly you get those bits of feedback from people has it all been positive from your parents and your friends yeah I mean god but when I first told my parents (coughs) that I was writing this book um, they they were both it's funny you think or parents, however great they are, think they want you to be happy and actually they just want you to be safe. So a lot of the things that like very well-meaning friends and family will say to you is just because they don't actually want to worry about you taking big risks and exposing yourself. Um, and I think my my parents, I think my first thing was, well, obviously it'll be about us. <laughs> and I was like, no, but there may be parents in it like you're gonna have to in most characters do have a form of parent in the book or you know there are going to be scenarios in which it'll be tricky for you to not read things into it um and I think you know with friends as well like I wish I could group together all the people who must assume that certain bits are about them because I'm like guys you all think (laughs) this person's about you I mean I guess I'm of the of the type of writer I guess kind of you know who I or the type of books I like to read, they are that kind of slight autofiction category. They do merge the the real or like certain experiences with fiction. I find that just somehow more have compelling. You, have you read um, Have you read Bleaker House by Nell Stevens? That is on my literally top of my to be read it's, pile. It's very good. It's it, and it does exactly kind of that kind of thing. And yeah, it's very, it's very clever. It's kind of you don't necessarily notice it, like or you do, and but you're confused, and then it's a bit. It's a very. It's very. But good. if you don't know Nell Stevens, then I'm sure that's like a. Di- you know, you exactly. go into it with that kind of openness. Whereas I, I can't really imagine that if I read a novel by a friend, which I actually haven't, um, which says I think more about the fact that I haven't got many novelist friends. Now I've become friends, but I met them afterwards. Yeah. And if I read, especially before I'd written one myself, a novel by a friend, I would have been like, thank you for sharing your innermost personal experiences <laughs> because you can't not attach what you know about that person. But I think the only way to deal with it is just to sort of say, yeah, the second you write something down on paper as opposed to living the experience yourself, it becomes a kind of fiction. And that's what, there's a quote by Lydia Davis where she says, it doesn't matter if I literally have a character called Lydia and Mr. Davis, that the second it gets onto paper, it becomes something else. You know, it's an anecdote and then it's written and then I've edited it and then it's not real anymore. So just trust in that dissociative power of your whatever laptop pen etc it's yeah it's the only way i think to write without fear cool great <laughs> advice <laughs> what a wonderful thing to end oh, on it's so cool. <laughs> sympathy is, thanks guys <laughs> um sympathies are out now from and you can buy all good bookshops probably some bad ones yeah. and off the internet and off the dreaded and internet, off the yes. internet um and olivia will be joining us at the riffraff on august the 10th uh at Ephra social please come along you can find tickets at the 
www.riffraff.com. Uh, we can't wait to see you there. Cool. Thank you so Thanks much for coming. Thank you. The Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. Peace. Thank you.